Federal Vision Part 2, Church and Covenant. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. You can find us anywhere. We are all over the place. Spotify, Podcast Addict, iTunes, you name it. We're piped out to just about every one of those podcast uh, platforms. Anywhere you get your podcast, you should be able to find the Baptist Broadcast. If you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and then the bell for continued notifications so that you can get notified whenever I post new content. Federal Vision, Church and Covenant. So last week we uh, looked at Federal Vision, uh, the joint state, uh, the joint Federal Vision statement, as it regarded the doctrine of the Trinity, and we saw that there are several issues with the tr- joint Federal Vision statement. I understand that uh, Doug Wilson has posted a couple of blog posts, I guess, between that episode and this episode. So I would just uh, like to quickly address that in the re- most recent. Uh, uh, blog post that he uh, that he published uh, under the section in the meantime uh, he says uh, but if tone and mood complaints are not the thing to accomplish it we still must be stopped and so maybe it is because of our triune problems or trinitarian problems but because we are as nicene as athanasius on a good day that is not going to be a fruit uh, fruitful line of criticism for them either now that is um, uh, uh, problematic because the article that he links to is not uh, is a statement. It's a statement on uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and uh, you can find that on blog and may blog. It's called On Authority, Order, and Equality Within the Godhead, and you find statements in there uh, such as Article 7. Uh, it's a summary statement. We affirm that the Son and Spirit in their respective missions reveal the authority and order of God the Father from all eternity. We deny that within the Godhead, this authority and obedience contain any tension, distance, conflict, friction, or resistance whatsoever. That first affirmation is not uh, an, uh, a Nicene a- affirmation at all. For example, if you read the Athanasian Creed, you, you uh, see in the Athanasian Creed that there is no greater or lesser in the Trinity and that the persons whom are consubstantial are completely equal in every respect. Uh, the only way in which they are distinct is uh, through order of subsistence. Um, later on, in uh, in a, a fuller or, or more expounded, the full statement, which starts below the summary statements in the same article, so you have a digest of the statement, and then you have a fuller statement, if you go to, uh, I believe it's Article 7 of that statement, um, it says, We affirm that the Son and Spirit in their respective missions reveal the authority and order of God the Father from all eternity. The Son has nothing but what is begotten and received from the Father, even as the Son has received all honor and glory from the Father. So all that the Son receives is to honor fa- uh, is to is to the honor of him who begat him before all worlds. So also the Spirit speaks nothing but what he has heard from the Father and the Son. And so all honor given to him rebounds first to the glory of the Father, from whom he principally proceeds, and then to the Son, who for us men and for our salvation sent him as the Lord and giver of life. And then uh, the further affirmation in that same article says, We further affirm that prior to the Incarnation, and independent of it, the Eternal Son was sent into the world. And then he cites John 3, 17, 10, 36, and 17, 18, which he created. Now listen, listen to that. We affirm, uh, we further affirm that prior to the incarnation and independent of it, so without consideration of the incarnation, the eternal Son was sent into the world, which He created. 
and so that's uh, not an Athanasian or, or a, a Nicene statement whatsoever. This is uh, framed as a statement that would that every Orthodox believer should be able to get on board with, and it's just not the case. There's several problems with this. Um, and then, uh, anyway, this is not an episode on the Trinity. You can go circle back around to the first uh, to the first episode. Uh, on Federal Vision, where we address the the doctrine from the Joint Federal Vision statement, uh, trying to be as objective as possible and look at that which several members of Federal Vision, uh, several adherents of Federal Vision, what they have affirmed together, I think is the best way to look. In these blog articles by by Doug Wilson, it's helpful, I think, to examine these and to to be able to provide some kind of accountability and say, look, this is what you have written. Do you stand behind this? And I think we need to do that with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity, and we need to do that with regard to the doctrine of justification. We need to do that with regard to the doctrine of sola fide, um, because there are things that have been said that contradict the confessional position on those things. Meanwhile, Doug Wilson claims to hold to a confessional reform theology. So there needs to be some kind of pressing there and some kind of accountability provided, one would think. Um. In this episode, we're talking about church and covenant, uh, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the covenant from the Joint Federal Vision Statement. The reason I want to talk about this, these two particular, again, I said we earlier, I said we we're not looking at every single article in the Joint Federal Vision Statement, but only really things that are clear concerns. I don't want to get into things that are doubtful, things that may or may not be erroneous, but I want I want to get into things that are that are clearly presented in the Joint Federal Vision Statement uh, and and things that we're able to put our finger on and say, that's that's concerning, and those are things that it looks like we need to talk about. I, again, I'm not out here to heresy hunt. I'm not out here to call Doug Wilson a heretic or anything like that, uh, I, but there are some concerns with Federal Vision, and, and look, I, I have had... Um, those who follow Doug Wilson's ministry quite closely closely come through my own church, um, uh, and I, I know other churches have struggled with uh, with this and have 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 had to respond to uh, things that Federal Vision adherents from Peter Lightheart to Doug Wilson uh, have said. And so I think this is a, a worthwhile topic to consider, and I hope to do it graciously and um, and and. Um, insightfully. So uh, let's go ahead and do this. I know that Doug Wilson wrote an article on uh, on faith uh, recently. That was either today or uh, the day before, uh, yesterday. And uh, what he said in that article is not necessarily going to be relevant to, to the concerns that I'm going to address here. There will be some relevant things that he discusses in that article that could over, overlap with some content here, but I don't think he addresses the key concerns and his name remains on the Joint Federal Vision Statement. And so I'm going to address Doug Wilson as he stands behind the Joint Federal Vision Statement that he has kept his name on for the last several years, and uh, I'm not going to necessarily directly interact with the article that he published either yesterday or today. Um, so uh, just just keep that in mind. So uh, if you comment on this video uh, and, and you say something like, well, Doug Wilson wrote an article yesterday or today uh, about faith, you should go and read it. I've looked at it. I, I, I've read through it. Um, I don't think that he addresses the concerns that I'm going to present here. 
and if, even if he did, his name yet remains on the Joint Federal Vision Statement, and that's problematic. Uh, and so does a host of other uh, Federal Vision adherents. They apparently stand behind that document, and much of what is said in that document is 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 the concern. So uh, let's go ahead and see if this works. Yep, there it is. You can see the PowerPoint, and um, we're going to move through this. Uh, I, I'm going to move through somewhat quickly, so uh, hopefully that's not going to uh, upset anyone. And if you miss anything, you can always rewind. Uh, these things are recorded for a reason. I'm going to be reading through several helpful resources today. We're going to be looking at Burkoff. We're going to be looking at Thomas Watson uh, as helpful guides as to the meaning and the intent behind the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, which I believe Doug Wilson still says he subscribes to. And uh, we're going to even have some words from uh, Dr. James Renahan uh, from his recent uh, Baptist Symbolics book, uh, Volume 2, To the Judicious and Impartial Readers. So hopefully those things will be helpful. We're obviously going to have literature from, or we're going to have words directly from Westminster, the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're going to interact with Scripture. And so it should be a pretty interesting episode today. You're going to find that in the Joint Federal Vision Statement, what these men stand behind as their very own words, they've put their name on that on this document. There are some surprising things said about the church, and there are some surprising things, maybe not so surprising things, said about the covenant, what they call the covenant of life. And so we're going to look at those things today. Uh, again, if you're just tuning in, I would encourage you to go back and read the first part. But if your question is, what is Federal Vision? Federal Vision is a theological position system that uh, arose from a conference that was held at Auburn Avenue, and it is um, several years old uh, at this point, uh, but some of the chief proponents of Federal Vision uh, are Doug Wilson, uh, Peter Lightheart, and, uh, and some others. And I, I believe that uh, the, uh, the men of Moscow, uh, many of them would affirm uh, much, if not all, of the joint uh, Federal Vision statement. Um, and, uh, and so it, it's certainly given their media output and their influence, their reach and things like that. I, I think it's a worthwhile topic. So welcome again, if you're just tuning in, I would encourage you to go read the first or go watch the first part on the Trinity. Uh, if you just choose to watch this one anyway, uh, before watching the one on the doctrine of the Trinity, you're, you're not going to miss anything. Um, you, you're going to get everything that I'm going to discuss concerning Church and Covenant. Uh, but do go back and, and watch that one on the Doctrine of the Trinity. So uh, just to kind of give you the roadmap of where we're going to go uh, today, you see here a table of contents. Chapter 1 of this book is going to, this is the second, if I'm, part, part 1 was book 1, part 2 is book 2, and then part 3 will be book 3. Uh, book 1 here has three chapters. We see baptismal faithfulness, faithlessness to baptismal obligations. We're going to look at what that is. That is language pulled from the Joint Federal Vision Statement, so we're going to look at that in some depth. Chapter 2, Invisible and Visible Church. What is the functional difference between those two things based on the articulation of that which is found in the Joint, Statement, uh, Joint Federal Vision Statement? And then chapter 3, The Covenant of Life, was Adam's eschatology by grace or not. We need to look at the covenant of works as we as we look at what they call the covenant of life. And so we're just gonna we're just gonna move through this, starting here with baptismal faithfulness. Again, this is language that is used or implied in the 
uh, section on the church in the Joint Federal Vision Statement, faithlessness to baptismal obligations. We need to ask what that is. We need to analyze its tenability. We need to look at it scripturally and, uh, and, and, and press it with some, I think, helpful questions that are intended to elicit clarity. So if you look at the Joint Federal Vision Statement, which I have here up on the screen, the section on the church, it's a denial statement. It says, we deny that membership in the Christian church in history is an infallible indicator or guarantee of final salvation. So what they're saying there is, just because you belong to Christ's church, uh, it, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to make, make it to the end. You might apostatize, right? Uh, you, 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 and, and the way they put that is, those who are faithless to their baptismal obligations— incur a stricter judgment because of it. Okay, so now they're not just uh, they're not just talking about um, apostasy, leaving the faith. They've added some additional uh, modifiers in there and that is you know faithless to baptismal obligations. And now there's not a, uh, a, a an exhaustive list as to what those uh, baptismal obligations are and the understanding of those who drafted this statement. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. But there, uh, there is an implication that uh, the faithfulness does involve some works. Okay, so faith faithfulness, the opposite of faithlessness, has to, at some level, involve involve some works. So I just want to ask some questions to uh, try to bring some clarity. Uh, and the question, the first question that I have is, what does it mean for a Christian to be faithless to their baptismal obligations? Um, is all sin faithless, uh, or is all sin faithlessness to baptismal obligations? And I, I, I couldn't see any way that it couldn't be. Um, how could we not say that sin is in some sense faithlessness or an expression of faithlessness to Christ and therefore to, uh, you know, our, our uh, commitment to him that we make in our baptism? And so if that's the case, if, if, if all sin is a form or an expression of faithlessness to our baptismal obligations— and if that faithlessness elicits judgment, stricter judgment, then it would seem that we are either judged or not judged based on works. By the way, we could throw in another question. What judgment are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, you know, a judgment of works in the sense of eternal rewards? You know, uh, are, we, are we talking about something like that? Or are we talking about you know, uh, the judgment? What, you know, there are a bunch of questions that arise from statements like this, and, and and the more questions something creates, and the longer those questions go without being answered, uh, confusion multiplies. Uh, another question: Do these obligations begin upon a regeneration, or do they become, or do they begin upon uh, baptism? So let's let's remove the equation uh, from the equation: infant baptism. Uh, and, and let's talk about uh, adult baptism. And even Doug Wilson would would admit that any adult who comes to the baptismal font 
has been regenerated before, or at least that's the assumption, and, and has at least made a profession of faith, and has borne some kind of fruit. So, in the in that case, you know, maybe this person has been saved for a year, and they have not yet been baptized. What does baptismal obligation look like then? And you know, uh, does it does it is the baptismal obligation still there? Because really, it's tied to regeneration, the effectual call, and so on, and a profession of faith, or is the baptismal obligation, something that commences upon water baptism. Do these obligations begin upon regeneration or baptism? If the former, in what sense would judgment apply? If a person is regenerate and therefore obligated to these obligations, covenant obedience, then in what sense would judgment apply? Because a person who is regenerate is going to be finally saved, uh, I ho- I'd hope we would say. I-, I don't think Doug would say that a truly regenerate person could lose their salvation. That would be a patent denial of all of the Reformed confessions. Um, but if the latter, so if it-, if it begins upon baptism, what of regenerate Christians not yet baptized? Like, what, what import does baptismal obligations have for Christians that have not been baptized yet? truly regenerate persons that have not been baptized yet. So those are some questions that uh, hopefully cause, elicit some thought and maybe even encourage some clarification. Um, if, if, if those who, and I, sorry, I have a typo there. Uh, it says, if this who lack faithfulness, it's supposed to be, if those who lack faithfulness incur judgment, then will not all Christians incur judgment? If all sin is an expression of faithlessness, which I, I think we should all say that it is, then would not Romans three twenty three and First John one eighteen or one eight sorry one eight suggest that we're all going to be judged, right? Because Romans three twenty three is actually written to believers. You have the verse twenty four, which is about justification. The context is believers for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, and uh, and then First John one eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, if every Christian has sin, and therefore every Christian has a measure of baptismal faithlessness, then is every Christian going to be judged? And and, and if that's the case, then how can we how can we call the gospel good news? Um, what is the good news? And 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 and. And furthermore, how how does that good news apply to those who bear the name of Christ? What amount of faithfulness is required for the Christian to avoid judgment? If all sin is an expression of faithlessness, and so therefore every Christian has some measure of faithlessness to their baptismal obligations, then what amount of, you know, does that mean that every Christian is judged? If not, then what amount of faithfulness is required for the Christian to avoid judgment? And all of a sudden, now you're talking about the covenant of grace and the gospel of grace as if it's a covenant of works, uh, as if this is something that we, freedom from, as if liberty from judgment, freedom from judgment is something that we can, is something that we can um, uh, demerit. And indeed, we'll see that there is a concept of demerit in the Joint Federal Vision Statement here in a moment. 
but there's uh, there's there's problems I think with this language going back to the statement itself. Those who are faithless to their baptismal obligations incur a stricter judgment because of it. Again, this is the context of this is the church. So what does this mean for believers, for true believers? I guess is is the overall question of this section. Um, but we'll go ahead and move on from here. The next sections are going to take us a little bit longer to look at. Invisible and visible church. Some interesting things are said here in the Joint Federal Vision Statement. What is the functional difference between the invisible and visible church if there's no such thing as an approximate church? That's the language that's going to be used here in the Joint Federal Vision Statement. You'll see it here. We affirm that there is only one true church and that this church can legitimately be considered under various descriptions, including the aspects of visible and invisible. So there, on the one hand, in the dialectic, they affirm that the church can be understood in terms or from the aspects of visible and invisible. But then what they say in their further affirmation is this, we further affirm that the visible church is the true church of Christ and not an approximate church. So everybody that's in the church, right? Everybody that's in the church visibly is the true church, the true church of Christ, and not an approximate church. So, maybe I I don't know if I'm missing something here, if there's just something that's glaringly obvious that I'm, that I'm passing over, which I wouldn't doubt given the fact that I know myself, <laughs> and I'm prone to making those kinds of errors. But just taking the first affirmation and the further affirmation together in that one paragraph seems to insinuate a logical contradiction. Um, what, for example, here are, this, here are these questions. What relevance does regeneration have to the church? So if, if the visible church just is the true church, um, and of course Doug would say that people can apostatize from the visible church and so on, then that brings into uh, that brings into relevance. What import does election have? What import does regeneration have concerning a person's status as a Christian and as a member of Christ's body, bride, church? And you know, unless it's it seems like to me. So if you if you look at the distinction between the visible and invisible. Those aren't two different churches. They are two different ways of looking at the same church. All right, that's the Reformed position, is that, that it would be two different ways of looking at the same church. Um, Burkhoff puts it nicely. We'll read from Burkhoff here in a moment. But, you know, one one way of looking at, church, at the church would be through God's eyes, uh, which we can't do. So we don't know who's truly with certainty. We don't know who's truly saved and who's not. We don't know who the elect are and who's not elect and so on. So we preach the gospel indiscriminately and and etc. That would be the invisible church. That's the church through God's eyes. That church is the true church. But then you have the visible church, which is which is the phenomenological church. This is this is the church as we experience it as as fallible and limited human beings. And that's always subject to error because, you know, someone might look regenerate, but not truly be regenerate. Um, and, and, and so we would say that that person was never part of Christ's church truly and absolutely considered. 
they looked like it. They were visible members, but they were not truly engrafted, so to speak. Uh, they were not truly a, a vital participant in the vine of Jesus Christ. And so unless a person can, what it sounds like here in this paragraph, the implication seems to be that a person can lose their salvation, uh, that a person can actually be truly regenerate and truly part of the body of Christ and truly united to Christ and also lose their lose all of that. That's that seems to be the implication of this paragraph. And you know, I, I'm not trying to be pedantic. I'm not trying to be nitpicky. But if we just try to think logically through what is said here, and if words have any meaning at all, that that seems to be the 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 implication. So unless a person can lose their salvation, and, and of course all that entails, union with Christ is at the core of this. The visible church will always be approximate. Is what I would want to say. Now, the visible church would always be approximate because the visible church is the church as fallible, limited human beings experience it. And so we obviously don't know who's truly regenerate. We don't, we don't know with, with 100% certainty who is a vital member of Christ's body. And so there's a, dis, there's a real distinction there between the church as it's visibly conceived and the church as it's invisibly conceived. Uh, and it's a it's a meaningful distinction, uh, and it's a helpful distinction. So let's move on to the next slide here. Still continuing on with uh, invisible, invisible church. Uh, we need to see the church in relation to the doctrine of union with Christ. Um, so let's look at some texts here, and then we're going to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're going to look at some Burkoff. We're going to look at Burkoff at some length. The church needs to be seen in relation to union with Christ, because through Scripture, throughout Scripture, you get all of this language of, you know, the church is the body of Christ. Uh, there's this marital language regarding the believer's union with Christ and 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 their place in in Christ's church, and Paul even relates that to the one flesh language uh, of the marriage ordinance. And, and and then, of course, you seem to have uh, the distinction between visible and invisible. You obviously have the distinction between visible and invisible church in the Westminster Confession of Faith, also the Second London Confession of Faith, too. Um, but I have the Westminster here because that is the confession that uh, Doug Wilson and proponents of Federal Vision are associated with. And so I would like to use that so that I can represent them as accurately as possible. Um, so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, bringing this idea of union with Christ into the doctrine of, of the church. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So the church, I would say the true church, is, is just is, the body of Christ. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is an entity in which God himself dwells, he, he lives in this church, in this body, and in virtue of it being compared to a body, it's, of course, the case that it's vitally united to Christ. Now, we know that there are people who claim to be part of that body and look very much like they're part of that body for a season who may not be truly part of the body. They're not vital members of Christ. They are... Uh, 
to use, uh, you know, uh, bold language, they're hypocrites. They're, they're one way on the outside and, and, and their heart is yet far from God. They haven't trusted Christ. Uh, and, and God hasn't regenerated them. He's, he's not effectually called them and, and, and so on. And so y- you have this distinction that's made necessary. Ephesians 5, 30 through 31, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones for this reason. And then Paul relates that language. Of course, he's talking about the church there, but then he relates that language to the marital language of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so those who are vitally united to Christ are, in a spiritual sense, one flesh with him. Uh, they are his his bride and his body. They are vitally united to him. Uh, the the uh, and, and so in that sense, the true church is comprised of only those who are vitally united to Christ. And, and if a person is vitally united to Christ, look, they've got the life, they've got the regeneration, they've 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 got all the benefits that come with being united to Christ. Perseverance of the saints being one of them. Um. Westminster Convention of Faith 25.5, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And it seems like in the article in the Joint Federal Vision Statement that the possibility of the visible church being subject to mixture is not there. That's not a possibility. Um, the statement clearly reads, we further affirm that the visible church is the true church of Christ and not an approximate church or not a mixed church, we might say. But here in Westminster 25.5, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Now, we're going to look at Burkhoff here in a moment. I'm going to finish reading this. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Now, let's look at Burkhoff. Burkhoff, of course, in these areas, there's nothing new in him. He, he, he's, he's following on the coattails uh, of the Puritans. And uh, he's, he's closely intertwined with uh, Herman Bovink. He's a gleaner from Bovink in a lot of ways. And Bovink, of course, is gleaning much from uh, Puritan, you know, Westminster Assembly ecclesiology. And so... Uh, Burkhoff and, and Bavink are, are steeped in that in, in this regard. And so nothing new is being said here. This is not a 20th century innovation, 19th or 20th century innovation here in Burkhoff. Uh, this is something that, uh, Bur- this is a historical doctrine of, of Reformed ecclesiology that Burkhoff is just simply articulating and he's commenting on. So uh, I'm going to read first what he has to say about the invisible church. Again, when we talk about the invisible and the visible church, we're not talking about two different churches. Calvin clarifies this, you know, during the time of the Reformation. It's not two different churches. It's two different aspects or two different vantage points by which we can look at the same church. All right. And one way of, of looking at the churches is more pure than the other way of looking at it. And and that purest way of looking at the church would, would be accessible to God alone. Um, but here's what Burkhoff has to say. Uh, this is coming from um, page 589 of Systematic Theology, the recent reprint of it from Banner. And it says, This church is said to be invisible because she is essentially spiritual and in her spiritual essence cannot be discerned by the physical eye. 
And because it is impossible to, to determine infallibly who do and who do not belong to her. Now, it seems like the federal vision statement is saying that everybody that's visibly in the church is actually truly the church. Burkhoff goes on, he says, The union of believers with Christ is a mystical union. The spirit that unites them constitutes an invisible tie. And the blessings of salvation, such as regeneration, genuine conversion, true faith, and spiritual communion with Christ, are all invisible to the natural eye. And yet these things constitute the real forma, or the ideal character, of the church. So you see what he's saying there. He's tying in union with Christ um, to the doctrine of the church. And he's basically saying that the, the invisible church, the true church, uh, the mystical church, we could call it, which is invisible to the physical eye, and the, the only visible representation of it we get is in, you know, the local church. As a Baptist, I would say it's in the local church. Um, but uh, this this aspect of the church is is invisible to, to the physical eye. These are all spiritual realities that obtain uh, for those who are united to Christ. And so union with Christ is, is brought to bear here in, in Ecclesiology by Burkhoff uh, beautifully. Now, here's what he says about the visible church just a page later. He says the visible aspect, uh, this is what he says about the visible aspect of, of the church. And he says, it is possible that some who belong to the invisible church never become members of the visible organization. Right? We wouldn't say that's ordinary, but it's, a, it's definitely a possibility. He says, as missionary subjects who are converted on their deathbeds and that others are temporarily excluded from it as erring believers who are for a time shut out from the communion of the, of the visible church, say through excommunication or something like that. But then he says, on the other hand, there may be unregenerated children and adults who, while professing Christ, have no true faith in him in the church as an external institution. All right, so what he's saying there is that there are false professors in the visible church. They're in the external institution, he's saying, the one that we can perceive with the physical eye. And, and they may look true like true Christians, but they're, but they're not. Uh, because the spiritual virtues and, and the things that make a true Christian a true Christian uh, are not there, even though the visible, even though they visibly appear like they are. And these, as long as they are in that condition, do not belong to the invisible church. So he's, even if they're even even if they're in the visible church, they don't belong to the vis, invisible. Even if they're in the visible church, they do not truly they do not belong to the true church, the invisible church. If they do not have true faith in Christ, if they're not vitally united to Him, and so on. Good definitions of the visible and invisible church may be found in the Westminster Confession. And we read some of that. Uh, we're not going to be read, be able to read all of it. He gives a helpful summary of the situation of the visible and invisible church. He says this, These are not two churches, but one, and therefore have but a single essence. The one, as well as the other, is essentially the communio sanctorum. But the invisible church is the church as God sees it, a church which contains only believers, while the visible church is the church as man sees it, consisting of those who profess Jesus Christ with their children, and therefore a judge to be the community of the saints. So I would take issue with the what Burkhoff would mean by the child uh, language there, but he's on point everywhere else. 
The visible church is the church as man sees it, consisting of those who profess Jesus Christ, right? And um, and if they're not true professors, they'll be sorted out at long last. All right, so there definitely is a distinction between the visible and invisible church in the Reformed confessional literature. We see it here in, in Burkhoff. Um, and, uh, and so very odd to affirm that distinction on the one hand, but seemingly collapse that distinction on the other hand by saying that the visible church is the essentially true church. The very function and the purpose of the invisible and visible distinction with regard to the church is to account for the reality of false professors who sojourn with Christ's true people within the four walls of the church. It's just a reality. Um, and, and they're treated like believers. You know, we don't go around and heresy hunt all the time. You know, we're not always going around grabbing people by the neck collar to examine them to see whether they're Christians or not. We preach to them and and administer the supper even to them if they're members of the church. Uh, and and so and we just plod along as best as we can, trying to discern uh, via the, the fruit we we can perceive. So we're going to move on from invisible, visible church to something that is not totally different, but relevant uh, to the church situation and, and accounts, eventually accounts for what we're going to look at in the third part regarding justification, the doctrine of faith, and so on. We're going to look at what the Joint Federal Vision Statement says about the covenant of life. And we're asking the question as we look at this section, was Adam's eschatology by grace? Uh, to positionalize myself, I would say no. <laughs> it was by his works. Thomas Watson would agree. And we're going to look at that here in a moment. But the Federal Vision Statement on the Covenant of Life says, We affirm that Adam was in a covenant of life with the triune God in the Garden of Eden, in which arrangement Adam was required to obey God completely from the heart. Okay, so we wouldn't disagree with that. But we would disagree with what's said next. We hold further that all such obedience, had it occurred, would have been rendered from a heart of faith alone. In a spirit of loving trust, Adam was created to progress, which brings to mind the question, what does Doug Wilson think and the signers of the Joint Federal Vision Statement? What do they think faith is? And that's part of what he's trying to answer in his article that he published either yesterday or today. I can't, I don't know. Um, but his name is still on the statement. We hold further that all such obedience, had it occurred, would have been rendered from a heart of faith alone. In a spirit of loving trust, Adam was created to progress from immature glory to mature glory. But that glorification, too, would have been a gift of grace received by faith alone. So what it seems like here is that there is, I mean, there, what is the significance of sola fide if really all sola fide, all sola fide means is covenant faithfulness, the ex works, um, obedience. And, and sure, maybe the, maybe the obedience comes from a heart of faith. But faith alone, the doctrine of faith alone, is to be seen within the Pauline distinction and opposition between faith and works. To the one who believes but does not work. Think about that language in Romans 4, verses 5 through 7. Okay, 
Next slide. We're going to look at some things here. We're starting off with Westminster Confession of Faith 7.2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. The Joint Federal Vision Statement does not call it a covenant of works. It calls it a covenant of life. And then it says that the way in which the benefits of that covenant are obtained and retained is by grace through faith. Well, here in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, article 2, it's definitely a covenant that's kept by works, which the drafters or the framers of the Westminster the Westminster Assembly would have understood as being, in this sense, opposed to sola fide or faith alone. Again, going back to that Romans 4, 5 language. And in him, to his posterity, upon condition of perfect, perfect and personal obedience. So what we need to do here, following the Westminster Confession of Faith, as well as the Second London Confession, and, and, and that's obviously just pulling biblical language, uh, we have to—one dis- of the things that I think happens is people get caught up on the fact that, well, the covenant of works never had to happen in the first place. And so it's by grace, right? So— The covenant of works is by grace. I mean, God didn't have to condescend to Adam in a covenant of works. And so it's by grace, right? Well, let's make a distinction here. I think this is a very helpful distinction. We're talking about law gospel or the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. This distinction helps us to further clarify what that distinction means. We have to distinguish between God's always gracious condescension to man. He didn't have to covenant with man at all. He wasn't obligated to do that. He did that voluntarily, and therefore that is an expression of his grace and mercy toward us. We have to distinguish between that versus the nature of the covenant that God condescends to make with man. Whether that covenant be kept monopleristically, that is by God himself and only by God, or diapleristically, this language uh, Dr. James Renahan uh, uses in Baptist Symbolics, Volume 2, 200, pages 200 to 202, that is uh, published by Founders Press. Uh, so the question, the question is not, has God graciously condescended? All covenants are monopleristically revealed. There's nothing that man can do to get a covenant to be revealed to him. God does that monopleristically. That is to say that God does that unilaterally. God is the one... And God alone, who determines to reveal and impose a covenant upon man, to bring man into a covenant relationship with himself. So all covenants, whether it's the covenant of works or the covenant of grace, all covenants are monopleristically revealed. That is unilaterally established and revealed by God. Not all covenants are monopleristically kept. Right? Not all covenants are kept by God and by God alone. That would only be the covenant of grace. Right? Not all covenants are monopleristically kept. So, for example, the covenant of works, in the covenant of works, while it is an expression of God's grace and kindness to Adam that he would reveal and impose the covenant in the first place, it's not the case that that covenant was kept by Adam by grace, if that makes sense. The covenant of works required man's response for covenant continuation, for man's continuation in that relationship with God in the garden. Man had to work. Man had to obey. All right? And that was that's not gracious. 
<laughs> it's not gracious because it's a diploristic uh, arrangement. Something is required of man. Something is required of his obedience in order for that covenant to continue. Now, when we're talking about the um, covenant of grace, it's monopluristic through and through. There are diploristic elements in the sense that, yeah, there are implications for man's life in the covenant of grace. But diploristically, when we're talking about both God and man, uh, man's not working in order to keep himself in the covenant, right? Man works because he is in the covenant, all right? The covenant of grace, in terms of its establishment and its promulgation, its continuation, its maintenance, and so on, is entirely monopluristic. It's entirely God-sided. It's entirely the case that God establishes the covenant. God has, through Christ Jesus, uh, uh, given the covenant uh, in the blood of Christ, and uh, that covenant is, is, is kept by Christ and by Christ alone. Um, there's nothing that we can do to keep ourselves in the covenant of grace. Otherwise, it would not be, uh, otherwise it would not be um, grace. It would be works. Uh, one of the things that I didn't see here that I meant to add in in is, um, let me do this. Uh, Romans eleven six. And if by grace, let's actually start at Romans uh, verse 5, Romans 11 verse 5. Even so, at, even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So you see what Paul's doing there is he's opposing grace and works. There's a certain opposition. Not as if the two are enemies. We would say that we work as a result of God having given us the grace to work, right? But we don't work in order to keep ourselves in the inheritance, in the covenant of grace, right? That is freely given to us. As a result of that, we obey, but we don't obey in order to maintain our status within the covenant. The problem, what we say about the covenant of works or or the covenant of life is, um, drastically affects how we perceive and understand the covenant of grace. For example, if we believe that the covenant of works is kept by faith alone and and all of its blessings and benefits are, are ceded to Adam uh, by grace alone through faith alone, what difference then substantially does the covenant of works have with the covenant of grace um, in terms of how it, it, it's entered into, in terms of how it's maintained and sustained, What's the difference between those two covenants? Uh, because if it's the case that the covenants, the covenant of works, we're, we're, we can't deny that Adam had to do something in order to continue in life. Um, that that language is so obvious and apparent in Genesis two, and and Doug Wilson wouldn't disagree with that, right? Adam had to obey unto life in the covenant of works. Do this and live. Fail to do this you shall surely die, okay? So you have that on the one hand. If if that just describes <laughs> faith alone and grace alone, then it could easily follow that, that the covenant of grace, the gospel itself, 
is kept by faithful obedience to the terms of the covenant. You see, then there's no difference between works and grace, even though Paul clearly says that there is. There's a formal distinction between those two things. Let's read uh, on the covenant of works from Thomas Watson. He's a a faithful expositor of the Westminster uh, Catechism. Uh, In fact, his body of divinity is an exposition of the Westminster, um, I think it's the Westminster Shorter, uh, catechism. Um, he says the covenant of works was not built upon a very firm basis and therefore it must needs leave men full of fears and doubts. The covenant of works rested upon the strength of man's inherent righteousness. And what he's talking about there is the donum concreatum, uh, the fact that man was created with an ability to obey God inherently. And so it wasn't grace given to man after the fact. It wasn't grace that was given to man as a result of man's need for grace, having fallen into sin. None of that that circumstance of, of man's sin and misery didn't exist then. So the obedience to the covenant of works rested upon the strength of man's inherent righteousness, the righteousness that he was created with in virtue of being created in the image of God which though in innocence was perfect, yet was subject to change. It was mutable. Adam was created holy, but mutable, having a power to stand and a power to fall. He had a stock of original righteousness to begin the world with, but he was not sure he would not break. He was his own pilot. He could steer right in the time of innocence, but he was not so secured, but that he might dash against the rock of temptation and he and his posterity be shipwrecked, so that the covenant of works must needs leave jealousies and doubting in Adam's heart, as he had no security given him that he should not fall from that glorious state. Amazing language. Um, And it points us to the importance of the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We have to say that the covenant of works was kept by Adam's concreated righteousness, the righteousness with which Adam was created, on the one hand, and that the covenant of grace is only obtained through grace alone, which is to say that it's not obtained or kept through our works. If we say that the covenant of works is by grace alone through faith alone, then everything we say of the covenant of works is identical to everything we say about the covenant of grace, and all of a sudden works and grace are confused. They're mingled together, and the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are mingled and confused. There's no formal difference between the covenant of works on the one hand and the covenant of grace on the other in terms of how man enters upon those covenants. They're the same. Uh, And uh, furthermore, law and gospel are confused. They're mingled together. So those distinctions are incredibly important to, uh, to, to uphold and defend, and clarify. And I just don't think the clarity is in the the uh, Federal Vision Statement. In fact, I think statements to the contrary of these confessional doctrines uh, exist. And so that's the end of this PowerPoint presentation. This presentation template was created by SlidesGo and includes icons by Flaticon and infographics and images by FreePick. Um, let me go back to this screen. Guys, I am very grateful that you tuned in for this. Hopefully, again, hopefully this was 
helpful and clarifying uh, that it doesn't muddy the waters, but that it brings clarity. I think every time we speak, we should try to bring clarity and not muddy the waters. If it helped you, it probably helped somebody else. So consider sharing it. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Be looking out for part three. We'll be talking about justification, sola fide, some more. We'll be talking about law gospel in that part as we look at the Federal Vision Statement a third time. God bless.